The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We have been making our way through the book and the letter uh, of Romans, a profound letter, a letter written by Paul from Corinth to the believers in the church in Rome in a time in between persecutions, a time before Nero had really flipped the switch uh, to devastate Christians, but within the context of a time where the Jews and the Christian, uh, Jewish Christians alike had been expelled from Rome and they were matriculating back and the church had remained there in Rome and had stayed there and was flourishing and growing and Paul was writing to them to explain to them the depth of the truth of the knowledge of God, to express to them Uh, what it means to be able to say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the salvation of all who believe in him to the Jew and to the Gentile. That Paul staked his life on these things and that Paul was saying to them, you need to understand what you believe, to appropriate it into your life, to make a decision. To know one way or the other, uh, do I believe these things or do I not believe these things? Because the lukewarmness, the middle ground, isn't a biblical ground. And Paul was saying, either you do or you don't. And if you do believe in chapters 1 through 11 and believe those things to be true about God and then about yourself in relation to God, if those things are true, then beginning in chapter 12, You will live your life on God's terms and not your own. That you don't get to negotiate with God. You don't vote Him into power. You don't donate uh, to Him in some way of influencing Him. You aren't doing anything to influence God. He is God. He has set these things in place. They are immovable, unshakable, and true. And therefore, we have to come and live based on His terms something that's very difficult for us. We don't like living on anybody else's terms. We like our own terms. Because the beauty of our own terms is they can change when we don't like them. God doesn't care whether we like them or not. Ultimately, this may come as a shock to you, God isn't ultimately concerned about your happiness. He's concerned about whether or not you know Him. And He's concerned whether or not You are a passionate follower of him. And so Paul is writing this letter, which changed the church. When Martin Luther studied it as this monk and scholar, coupled with his studies of Galatians, it radically changed him. And because it changed him and he began to teach it within the context of the Roman Catholic Church, it forever changed the church as we know it. Institutions began to fall All of a sudden, the depth of the knowledge of what people believed because they were uneducated about the truth of the gospel and the message of the Bible, indulgences went away. Seeing the Pope as having equal power in his say as God went away. That purgatory went away. Uh, That all of the different things of a a righteousness that you earned, of a bank of salvation, of Mariology uh, and Mary as an intercessor, they all went away. 
All because Martin Luther's heart was captured by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul had explained it. And just a few years later, Charles Tyndale translated the Bible into the language of the people out of the Latin Vulgate. And the church at Rome responded by killing him. It was a capital offense to translate out of the Latin into the vulgar language of the day. Why? Because it threatened the institution. It threatened the power structures of the day. And folks, Romans is still threatening the power structures of the day. And the power structure that it's most threatening is your own heart. Because you and I, we like how we have orchestrated our lives. For young people, you are saying, well, I love Jesus now. And then you're going to come to a day when you're like, well, I still love Jesus, but I don't want him to interfere very much in my life. So I'll pick him back up later on after college. And you get married and you say, well, we're doing pretty fine on our own. We're pretty good. So we don't really need Jesus now, but we'll get him one day when we have kids because we sure want our kids to be in church and have a good religious base like we had. And so we'll come back one day. And then in your married life and in your life as a family, you find, well, you know, this is pretty crimping in my style, so I'm not sure I want to follow this right now, so I'm going to set it aside for this season. I'm going to go do whatever the heck I want to do, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it. And Jesus, I'll come back to you one day when it's more convenient for me. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul and the writing of Romans, is thundering at the institution of your heart and saying, you have to meet God on His terms, not yours. And so today... Paul has been saying over and over, may your mind be transformed by the Spirit. May your life be transformed and no longer conformed to the world. And that would show itself in the manner in which you live your life, how you love one another, how you live within the church, how you're gifted and see your giftedness, how you relate in these ways. And then right at the end of chapter 12, now granted he didn't write in chapters, so at the end of that paragraph and talking about this family love of how we relate and love one another as a family, Paul moves on and he goes from what some would call preaching into meddling. He all of a sudden takes this and goes, now, folks, we're going to talk about government and politics. He went there. You're not supposed to go there. Religion's a private thing, Bill. We don't go there. Don't go there with me because November's coming and I don't want you messing around with my already predisposed determination of what's best in the world and how things are supposed to be within the civil government. So let's just skip chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. And folks, I understand fully why pastors preach topical sermons. Because they won't have to preach chapter 13, 1 to 7. Because in it... And in the consideration of it, it will challenge you to ask questions. If you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, if you're libertarian, if you're a-governmental and a-political, it challenges you to ask questions and to seek better answers than what's being presented within the world today. So Paul takes us right here to the civil authorities in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. If you have your Bibles, would you read along with me? 
This is the very word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. So why in the world did Paul just jump in to chapter 13 and start right there after coming out of uh, this section on love and caring for one another in the body of Christ? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons that I think for that as a way of introduction, and then we're going to look at the meat of the text together and see what are the implications for us. But what Paul's doing in this section is he is just further explaining and further pressing down and further expanding the implications of the fact that he says, now, as Christians, based on what you believe, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your act of spiritual worship. That he's saying, okay, let's see how far this goes. Let's see where the tentacles of this reality and this truth now go and meet themselves out. So you see, Paul is writing this as a wonderful pastor of saying, folks, listen, there's a tension in which you find yourselves, for you know you're biblically grounded and you know that this world isn't your home, that your citizenship is in heaven and you have a different king and you have a different authority and a different set of rules and laws And that it's very tempting within that context to then avoid and disavow yourself from all civil government and say that we don't have to follow the rule of the state, we're going to follow the rule of kingdom. And so you're a pilgrim knowing that that's where your home is, but Paul would say, but you're also a sojourner, for you are in this world, but not of this world, and you live within the context of this world for a time and a season. And so there is a tension within that of knowing that we're believers who owe our allegiance and alliance somewhere else, but yet we live within the context of this day and this age and within this place of history. And so Paul was writing to explain these things. Paul was writing to a people who would have understood that when Paul said that they were being, in Romans 8, they were being killed all the day long by the sword that they would have understood that that sword was being wielded by a government. And now Paul was saying to them, respect and honor this government. That this government was sending them and would send them, maybe if not at the very moment of writing, into a coliseum to be torn apart as sport and as entertainment for the pagan world. 
And he was writing to them and saying, how do you relate to these leaders who are intentionally killing you? Paul was also writing in a sense, this more specific sense, Paul was writing to say to us, we have to submit even to the particulars within a government. And he brings up taxes. Why taxes? Couldn't he have chosen something else? Well, maybe it was because taxes evidently seemed to be a big issue even from the time of Christ. For the Jewish thought was we're not going to give to Rome. Rome's not our authority. God is our authority. And they tried to question Christ on it. And Christ pulled out the coin said, upon this coin, whose image do you see? And they said, Caesar. And he said, then render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. He talked about taxes. And later Paul speaks about taxes again. Peter speaks about taxes. So evidently taxes were a big issue. And what Paul is writing is simply to say this, that all of our behaviors are illustrations of how we honor and glorify God. And that Paul needed to address this matter. And Paul needed to talk to the people about what does it mean to be kicked out of Rome, but yet to now go back to Rome and live under the authority of this pagan culture that hated God and had no place for him or his followers. So there's some motivation for him to write it. Now what he was writing and the things that we're going to take away today are several and they tie together and it's a challenging sermon folks some in the first service were laughing that they watched me kind of tiptoe between lines and over lines and behind lines and some questioning even my American patriotism uh, on this and if you were to go out into our parking lot and look at bumper stickers I would imagine that we're not a blue parking lot we're more of a red parking lot And so some of you in that are going to be challenged by the things that I say in the middle of this because this has something to say to Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and anyone who claims to be a Christian and lives within this country. It has something to say and we need to listen and think through these things. And the first thing that I'm going to say this morning, thank goodness it comes straight from the Word of God without any need of clarification, but all authority in the world, all authority in the world, inclusive of civil government, is derived and instituted by God. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It was true of Claudius, it was true of Nero, Uh, It was true of all of the worst and the best of governments that have been established in the world from the beginning of time, and it is currently true in modern-day United States of America that all government is established by God and instituted by Him. Psalm 103.19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Daniel, in his relationship to Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire, 
Daniel answered, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons and he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And later he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and said, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head. And in John, when Christ was speaking to Pilate, and Pilate challenged him, and he said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Or in First Peter, when Peter was writing to a similar audience as Paul a little later, and those who were being persecuted severely, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperors as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. God has established government. He has set government in place. And even within our own government, we like to look back uh, with, I would say, a false sense of nostalgia that we're a Christian nation begun on Christian principles when the founding documents of our country were written by two men, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, who were at best man-centered deists. And right in the very heart of our own Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But later to say this, governments are instituted among men deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. Isn't it interesting that at the very heart of our own government is not a full acceptance of Romans 13, but a sense at which man is at the center of government, and man is the one who determines government, not God. Now, I'm, I fully agree that democracy, I believe, is the best form of government for the, the pursuit of the things which are good for humanity, that it protects us against tyranny in a very good way, but do not be fooled to think that at the very heart of our own government, in the very heart and the root of it, is man, not God, at the heart of these things. But we need to understand that all authority in the world is derived by God. Therefore, civil government, point number two, civil government has a role to play in God's sovereign plans. Because government is established by God and instituted by God, civil government has a role to play in God's sovereign plans. Both those civil governments which we redeem as good and those civil governments which we redeem as evil. Not even deem as evil, but which are evil. Verses 2 to 4, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, 
For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This means that for the Roman Christians and for us today, that it is God's will to govern the world and to govern mankind through human civil authority. That God has established it and he is using this civil authority both as good and as judgment. That God has appointed government as a means of his grace towards us. That it's good to have government that says it's wrong to murder. That's a good thing, right? Yes? I thought that'd be an easy one. I'm going to just scratch off the other uh, illustrations. Wow, be careful whoever's sitting beside you. Uh, Because we have a civil government that says we want to protect good. And we don't want to go around in anarchy killing whomever we want to kill, that lying and cheating is wrong, that there are rules of the road, and it's good to follow the rules of the road. If you've been to some other cultures with other civil governments, the rules of the road are different and scary as all get out. So it's nice within ours to say, hey, there's good rules for orderliness and how we should work and live together, that you will be blessed if you do good. But on the flip side of that, Government is also appointed by God as a means of his judgment. That if you break the laws of the state, that if you murder, if you steal, if you commit acts of atrocity, if you do things, that the government acting on behalf of God institutes those responses. Now, of course, there are questions that not all governments do what is right and good. And that some governments punish things that shouldn't be punished. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that God is saying, and I must say, that civil authority is God's chosen instrument to govern the world of men. And so that government has a place and a role. Again, regardless of your political leanings. And so I would ask you this, as you consider the role of government, of the size of government, of the expanse of government, of all the different things of the government, if the church was doing what the church was called to do, would government have to do as much as the government is doing? So as you go in and vote, and you go and you consider and you get in your political wranglings with one another, if we, the church of Jesus Christ, We're doing what we were called to do and not protecting our 401ks and not protecting inheritance taxes, but giving so much away that there wouldn't be that much left to worry about at the end of the day. And we're caring for the indigent poor and we're caring for the education of individuals, as the church has done historically, by the way, orphanages, hospitals, institutions of higher learning, all of these things begun within the context of the church to care for the needs of humanity, but now when the church has suburbanized itself and moved to the outside, it's left a void that has to be filled with something else. And so the question becomes, what's the role and the function of civil authority? But God has instituted it both to be a means of his grace and a means of his judgment. So then, what's our attitude towards civil authority? Verse 5. If God has established all authority, 
that he uses it both as a means of his grace and a means of his judgment, that it has a part to play uh, within his overall plan. What should be our attitude towards the civil authorities? Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. What Paul is saying there is our attitude towards government is this. You don't obey the civil authority simply so you don't get in trouble. You obey the civil authority out of a matter of conscience. For by your obedience you bring honor to God. That you recognize uh, that within the context of submitting yourselves out of reverence to God. Not out of reverence to the ruler. Let me say that again. We submit ourselves out of reverence to God, not out of reverence to the ruler. One commentator wrote this, God has stripped rulers of their final authority. That's what this verse means. That they are not God. God is God. When you submit, you submit for God's sake. 1 Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And this Lord is the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. In other words... Keeping the speed limit is Christian worship. I don't worship much on I-95. No one does. Except the person who you yell at when you go by. It is an act of worship and reverence. I get the argument, hey, if I'm old enough to die for my country, I should be able to have a beer. Well, when the government says you have to be 21, guess what? Young people, you need to be 21. And parents, you need to hold that. Because it's out of reverence to God, not out of your decision whether or not that law is correct or not. And if the government says something, we obey it. Out of reverence to God. Christians don't simply obey to avoid punishment, though that is a motivation. We obey because we honor and serve and revere God. Christians recognize that if God has ordained all government, then it is reasonable and right to obey the law of the land. Christians, we should be the ones who look the most civil in that. And then we work within the context of that to change what laws we don't agree with, that we go through the proper channels and do the proper things and get involved uh, in the process to do that. And that we have within this attitude... 1 Timothy 2, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So what we do instead of sitting around a cup of coffee or the dinner party and we bash whoever is in position above us because they hold a, a, a political place that we don't hold, we don't bash them, we pray for them. We can disagree with them, but we would do so with honor. We would do so with deference and dignity to the individual created in the image of God and placed in that position by God. And we pray for them. Honestly, church, when's the last time you prayed as desperately for Barack Obama as you did for your own children? When's the last time you prayed for Donald Trump or for Hillary Clinton or for Bernie Sanders or for 
Nikki Haley, or for all of those put into positions of authority over us, that we pray for them. You see, Christians respond differently to the government because of the profound theological framework and depth of knowledge that we have about how government functions within God's economy. It affects us. It affects how we do these things. So what then would you say about civil disobedience? If we're supposed to obey and we're supposed to do these things and be civil in this, what happens when the government demands that the Christian break their conscience and break the direct commands of God? There is a place for civil disobedience within the context of Christianity and within the context of the Bible. I don't have time to fully go into it, but in Acts 5, when the apostles were before uh, the leaders of Jerusalem and their response after being told not to preach the gospel and not to speak the name of Jesus, their response was, we must obey God rather than men. For the midwives in Egypt who saved the children against the, direct, against the directive of Pharaoh, Daniel who continued to pray to God instead of bowing the knee to Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow to the golden idol, Rahab, who directly disobeyed the civil authorities to let the spies in. That Obadiah hid the prophets in the face of Jezebel, the queen who wanted to kill them. You see, the state cannot impose upon Christians those things which would violate their consciences, those things which would require Christians to break God's commandments. If the state today said to me, Bill, you cannot openly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and use his name, I would by conscience and by obedience defy that. There is a place for that. There is a place for if our country was to say that you are mandated to have only one child and that child should be a male child and every other infant infant in your womb would need to be euthanized. It would be the responsibility of conscience and of obedience for the Christian to stand against that tyranny. It is a balance, though. For we have to understand what are the implications. What is the scope? We have to be very concerned and incredibly discerning about whether or not particular legislation binds our consciences in such a way that it would be against a clear commandment of God. Folks, there is a place for it. And Christians, by the way, should be leading the charge of standing up for what is right within the world and standing against what we see as wrong. And then finally this. What's our ultimate goal in all of this? What would be the take-home point for you today? Here's the take-home point. It comes from 1 Peter, Paul's friend and fellow servant in Rome. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The ultimate end for what we do is to bring glory to God in the manner in which we approach politics, in the manner in which we approach the civil authorities. A Christian should never 
threaten to move to Canada. I'm not joking. If God is on his throne, and he is, and he has placed you in America as a believer and a follower of the true king, that it doesn't matter who is going to be elected next November. It doesn't matter who is going to be seated ultimately, ultimate matters, ultimately on the Supreme Court. Those are important, engage the system, but at the end of the day, whatever comes, trust that it is from the hand of God and our response to it and our engagement within the process should bring glory and honor to God. It's amazing how visceral and how ungodly are communications and conversations about politics. It's wrong, church. Stand for your position, but do so with honor and integrity and difference. I don't agree fully with people who are different from me. Obviously, we're different. We don't agree on those things. But I was just having quite a heated conversation with someone this week about Bernie Sanders. And my question was simply this. As a Christian, why is it wrong for Bernie Sanders to want to distribute wealth within the country to take care of people who have none, to give education to those who won't get any, and to give health care to those who won't be able to get health care? It sounds an awful lot like Acts chapter 2. And this person was like, whoa, 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 Bill, I thought you were a Republican. Like, I am, but I'm just asking the question. Shouldn't we be taking care of poor people? Shouldn't we be educating the uneducated? Shouldn't we be the ones who are most gravitating towards the single parent and to go into the urban centers where there is poverty instead of heading back out to islands? I live here. I'm condemning myself. I get it. But even on our island and in the low country, isn't there something to be done that should bring glory and honor to God by the church and not by the government? And if the church isn't willing to do it, then we should honor the government for going in and doing it. That we bring glory to God in the midst of these things. You see, because at the end of the day, God is more concerned about our trust in Him, our humility and our self-denial than He is about our civil liberties. God is more concerned about how we respond to Him versus whether we have our civil liberties and our freedoms. Folks, I love my children desperately, but I am more concerned about their knowledge of God and their respect of authority than I am of them being happy and contented and having a new car. And so they will lose some of those things in order to gain something greater than them. And God is saying the same thing. We're too concerned about the wrong things. And he wants us to be concerned about him. God wants us to fully trust in him and glorify him, even when it means that our civil liberties and freedoms are lost along the way. That's a tough one. Not very American. And then the other end, and I need to finish up, is this. Our goal is to glorify God, but our goal is also to lead others to glorify God by the manner in which we live our lives and the manner in which we engage politics and the civil authority. That we want our lives to be such that our conduct among the Gentiles, our conduct 
within the civil structures. Christians should be mayors. They should be council people. They should be involved in the governments. They should be there working for it. And their conduct in those ways should bring glory and honor to God. And for those of us who are outside of the system per se, should live in such a way that the Gentile would look around and say, I want to know more about your God. Folks, we should, we should just go ahead and wipe from the slate this question. Can a Democrat be a Christian? And can a Republican be a Christian? The answer really should be this, and the question should be, how can any individual ever be a Christian except for the safe mercy of God given to them? Folks, tread with great humility into these next months. I'm not looking forward to my mailbox being inundated and my inbox being inundated. I'm not looking forward to all of it, and I have my very strong opinions on it. But at the end of the day, I know this. I will engage the process, but I will sleep well at night, and I will sleep well on January 1st because God is on his throne, and that's not up for discussion or vote ever. Amen? Amen. Here are John Piper's words, and we'll wrap, and the team can come on up. In Paul's mind, faith and humility and self-denial are vastly more important for the Christian than, that, than what we will be treated by a government. And the reason is this, being persecuted unjustly is not the reason anyone goes to hell, but unbelieving and arrogance and self-indulgent is the reason why most people go to hell. Jesus never promised his people a fair fight. He actually promised them the very opposite. And if they treated the master of the house like the devil... How much worse will they treat you and me? The main issue is not being treated justly in this world by civil authorities. The main issue is trusting Jesus, being humble and denying ourselves for the glory of Christ and for the good of others. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult passages, but important. They challenge us. And Father, we may come to the exact same conclusion, but I pray that we would go through the process of asking you, to peer inside our held positions, to peer inside to the motivations that lead us to the decisions that we make, and that would we find you to be our grandest motivation in all these things. To Christ be the glory. Amen. We're going to invite you to sing this new song once again, Man of Sorrows, for Jesus came and is risen and is in heaven, coming again one day, and we celebrate the understanding.